I need a miracle. Perhaps you've said that to yourself before. Or perhaps you've said, we need a miracle. Um, Maybe you've been facing a dire diagnosis of some kind for yourself or perhaps for a loved one. Or maybe in less drastic terms, you've said, I I need a miracle, somewhat flippantly, right before a final exam, perhaps because you failed to properly study for such an exam. Uh, We use the word miracle in in different ways, don't we? Uh, We speak of the miracle on ice to refer to the uh, 1980 victory of the United States hockey team over the the Soviet hockey team. We refer to the the miracle on the Hudson to speak of Captain Sullenberger's amazing water landing in 2009. But we also speak of miracles to explain things that are unexplainable. What are miracles? What are real miracles? Miracles. Who performs them? What is the source of their power? How should we react to and respond to miracles? What are the reasons for miracles? Why do they occur in our world? Why do they occur in the Bible? What do they tell us about the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word, from Acts chapter 9. Verses 32 to 43. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, let me encourage you to find that passage on page 918. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just remind you of the aim and the agenda of the book of Acts. The aim of Acts is to chronicle the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. And the agenda, in the very first chapter of Acts, Jesus sets the agenda for how the book of Acts is going to unfold. Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That's the agenda that Jesus set forth in the advancement of his good news. Now, in the first seven chapters or so of the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel advance there in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 8, persecution by the hand of Saul pushed the gospel out to Samaria, out to the desert, to an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, and out to Azotus, and then on to Caesarea. Jesus' disciples are being his witnesses, just as he promised. Last week, we studied the, um, the first half of Acts 9, and there we saw the Lord Jesus sovereignly save an enemy of the gospel, Saul. Jesus not only saved Saul, but he also made him a servant. He commissioned him to go and preach and proclaim his gospel in Damascus, and then later in Jerusalem. The good news about Jesus, as we're seeing in the book of Acts, continues to expand and grow. And in the second half of Acts 9, which we hope to study today, Luke turns his attention back to the apostle Peter. Peter has been a prominent preacher and leader in Jesus' church, and Luke returns to Peter in preparation for another development in the history of the church, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church of God. So in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, we're reminded that Peter is one of Jesus' divinely authorized representatives and messengers. If you're scanning the passage now, you'll see that it opens with Peter kind of running here and there, preaching and teaching the saints, probably because uh, Saul has been converted and is not persecuting the church. He has this freedom to go out and check on other churches that are are cropping up and growing. And our passage, if you look at the tail end of it there, you'll see that it concludes with Peter staying in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner, where Peter will eventually receive a vision from the Lord concerning the inclusion 
of the Gentiles in the church. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up that and take a look at that later on. But in between that top and the tail, in between the beginning and the end, we're especially looking at two amazing miracles that Peter performs among the people in Lydda and Joppa. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that Jesus performs these two miracles through Peter among the people of Lydda and Joppa. And as a result, many turn to the Lord and believe in the Lord Jesus. So if you wanted to boil down the whole point of this passage and this message here this morning into a single sentence, it would be this. The Lord Jesus raises the disabled and the dead, so you should turn and trust in Him. The Lord Jesus raises the disabled and the dead, so you should turn and trust in Him. I want you to see this for yourself in the passage. And throughout the course of the sermon, my goal is to prove that that's the point of the passage to you. That what I'm saying there, that the Lord Jesus raises the disabled and the dead, and that you should turn to Him, is the very point of the passage. So see if you can spot that idea as we read now. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 uh, to 43. Follow along now as I read. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. He presented her alive. Uh, then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. I hope that it's somewhat obvious, you can see there, that the focus of this passage is on the power of the Lord Jesus Christ working through the Apostle Peter to raise the disabled and the dead. I also hope that you can see in the response of the people of Lydda and Joppa, in their turning to and trusting in Jesus, the response that this text calls forth from you, that this is how you are to respond to what we're seeing here, that you should turn and trust in Jesus. So if you're taking notes this morning, uh, the rest of the sermon will, be fo will follow along this outline. Two simple points. The Lord Jesus raises the dead and the disabled, the disabled and the dead. And then secondly, you should turn and trust in Jesus. Those two points. And I pray that the Lord would give us illumination, insights, and increasing desire to be transformed by the glory of Jesus in this text. So let's begin with our first point. The Lord Jesus raises the disabled and the dead. 
central to this passage, one of the things that should have jumped out to you is how many times Luke uses the language of rising and raising, or he rose and, and went. He, he, he uses it not only in connections with Peter's words and actions, but also in connection with those who are healed. And the same root word for rising and raising in the Greek is used at least in five places in our passage. Uh, Luke's repetition in such a short span should catch our attention. He doesn't, doesn't want us to miss this key idea. So, so look at Peter's words and actions there in verse 34. Do you see them? And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Right? Peter's commands to Aeneas. And that is a command. It's a command to Aeneas. Peter's command to Aeneas to rise. And then Aeneas, he obeyed. He arose to that command. Those two references, rise and rose, have the same uh, root word in the Greek. Now skip down to verse 39 and, and read, verses, uh, read verse 39. And you'll see the same uh, word there used three more times. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. Same root word there. Skip down to verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. It's the same word there. Keep going. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Same word there again. Right? This idea of rising up is central to our passage. We know that through the repetition. But we also know it through the response that the people have to this. Right? It was because Aeneas was raised up from his disability and Tabitha was raised up from the dead that the people of Lydda and Joppa responded to this good news that was being proclaimed and preached about Jesus. But, but all of this raises a question, right? Who are these people? Who is Aeneas? Who is Tabitha? Well, Aeneas, let's begin with him. Uh, the information, all of the information that we have about Aeneas is found right here in Acts 9. Uh, he lived in Lydda which is about 44 kilometers, about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Perhaps he was a believer. We don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, but we do know that there were believers in Lydda because verse 32 tells us that Peter, he came down uh, to the saints who lived there. So if Aeneas wasn't a believer, it's clear that the believers at least knew of his condition. And they directed Peter to him. It seems most likely that there were uh, believers in Lydda as a result of Philip's preaching. You'll remember, if you think back to Acts chapter uh, 8, I think it's in verse 40, we're told that Philip, he goes about preaching on his way to Caesarea. And the path that he takes would pass by these towns, uh, Lydda and Joppa. So it's likely that Philip's preaching ministry uh, cultivated saints there and churches there. And that's where these two miracles are, are taking place. Anyway, uh, there are two things about Aeneas that underscore the, the authenticity of this apostolic miracle. For one, you see there, he was bedridden for eight years. His condition was, was undeniable, and it must have been known to many in the community, for he would not be able to survive without people in the community providing alms and providing for his sustenance. So the people in the community knew of his condition. And there's another thing there. We have his name and his location. And that means that this miracle, it could have been investigated and falsified if it weren't true. But it was true. Aeneas really was healed by Jesus. And that's an important point. He was healed by Jesus. Do you see that there in verse 34? Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter's clear. He's not the one who's doing the healing. It's Jesus working through him. It's Jesus who heals Aeneas. It's Jesus who raises this disabled man. 
In fact, Jesus has worked in this way before. And I want you to see that. Keeping one finger here if you can. Can you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12? Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. You're using one of the Bibles provided. That's on page 837 of the Bibles provided. And when you get there, you'll see that Jesus heals a man paralyzed like Aeneas. Uh, he even tells him to pick up his mat. Like Peter told Aeneas to rise and make his bed. Follow along now as I read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And see if you can spot some parallels between the healing of Aeneas and what we see here. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on a bed uh, uh, which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Do you see the parallels between Jesus' healing of this paralytic man, and the, the, the healing that Jesus does through Peter there in Acts 9? Do you see how Jesus also understood that the paralyzed man's greatest need his greatest disability was not physical, but spiritual. That's something that we need to recognize. Because we live in a world marred by sin. We all have bodies that are breaking down, some faster than others. We all need physical restoration, some in greater degree than others. But Jesus' physical healings, they are a foretaste of the inbreaking kingdom, of His heavenly kingdom in this age. That kingdom to come is breaking in and Jesus is showing His kingdom power in these miracles. And they are, for, for these men, for this paralyzed man and for Aeneas, they are a temporary reprieve. This man's physical body will break down again. And eventually he will die. But Jesus' spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus' healing there is an everlasting guarantee that those who trust in Him will dwell with Him in glory. It is there that they will fully and finally enjoy, to use the words of Revelation 21 verse 4, no more death, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things will have passed away. We long for that day. And Jesus' miracles are a foretaste and promise that His kingdom will fully come. In this age, we especially need Jesus' spiritual healing. While many of us enjoy good health now, Apart from Jesus, apart from His work, we are all spiritually disabled. Unable to get up, unable to walk to God or to make peace with God. Only Jesus can heal the spiritually disabled. Only Jesus 
can heal you. And Jesus can heal you. Jesus healed Aeneas through Peter. And he did the same thing with Tabitha. Turn back to Acts chapter 9 verse 36. So hopefully you kept one finger there. But if not, it's on page 918 of the Bibles provided. Our passage, it contains really a little more information that we have uh, about Tabitha than we do uh, Aeneas. Tabitha's passage is a bit brighter than Aeneas, right? Aeneas was known for being bedridden. But you see there in the text that Tabitha was known for being full of good works and acts of charity. Every Christian, especially every Christian woman, should want to have such a testimony at their death. And the only way to have such a testimony at your death is to pursue these things in your life. Sisters, tonight at our women's fellowship, Lord willing, we'll be talking about some of these things that the Scriptures encourage you to pursue in this life. I hope that you'll come. I pray that the Lord be pleased to to bear fruit in that time, to teach us about how we can walk in His ways and have such a a testimony like Tabitha. Tabitha, she was a, a disciple of Jesus. And again, that's probably because Philip had carried out a preaching ministry in and through that area on his way to uh, Caesarea. Joppa uh, was only about 18 kilometers, about um, 11 miles, I think, northwest of Lydda. Joppa is about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's situated uh, right next to modern Tel Aviv, if that's helpful for you. Anyway, Peter, if he walked at a decent pace, he could make it to Joppa from Lydda in about two and a half to three hours, maybe a little more, um, and be there in the upper room there with the body of, of Tabitha. Notice that we're given two names, right? We're given her Aramaic name, Tabitha, and her Greek name, Dorcas. Both, they both mean gazelle. And I think Tabitha lived up to the beauty and elegance of her name, didn't she? That she was full of good works and acts of charity, indicating that she was likely wealthy and generous and willing to use her time to bless others and her talents to bless others. These needy widows, they, they mourn her death. They, they weep and hold out to Peter. They're showing Peter the evidence of her blessing in their lives. They, they show him these cloaks and these tunics that this wealthy woman made to help keep them warm and covered. They were showing Peter their dependence upon Tabitha and the evidence of her Christ-like love and her godly generosity. Just pause and ask yourself, looking at these women mourning Tabitha, who will be at your funeral? Who will mourn you and mourn your death? Who will testify to your good works and acts of charity? I've been to many funerals, and some of the testimonies that I hear at funerals are so deeply sad because they're devoid of a testimony of Christ-like love and godly generosity. Who will testify to your Christ-like love, your godly generosity, and the spiritual impact that you've had in their life? Parents, At your funeral, your kids might say that you were always at their sports games, always at their practices, and that would be a fine thing for them to say, that look, dad or mom, they never missed a game. But let me encourage you to live and love them in such a way that they will say, dad and mom read the Bible with me around the dinner table. Live, love, and labor in such a way that they will say, they prayed with me and for me every night live and labor in such a way that they will say they had me at church every time the doors were open, the lights were on, and it was allowable to be there. Uh, Live and labor in such a way that they will say, you know, mom or dad, uh, that they were a sinner. And when they sinned against me, they repented of their sins. And, And they asked for my forgiveness. And that taught me that I could ask 
God the Father for forgiveness. They, they taught me that God was approachable and that He offers forgiveness. Live and labor in such a way that they will say, they, they often show me mercy and grace and patience when I didn't deserve it. And that taught me that God Himself was merciful, that He was gracious and patient with me. Christian, if you left your workplace, let's dial it back from, from death, but if you left your workplace, would your coworkers mourn your departure? They may not be able to articulate it by this, but, but live, love, and labor in such a way that they will say that you brought the aroma of Christ to the workplace. Live, love, and labor in such a way that they will say that you were generous with your time and you taught them about Jesus in word and deed. Brothers and sisters, let us make it our aim to leave an unmistakable testimony like Tabitha's testimony. Tabitha, she was beloved not only by these widows, but also by the believers in her town. Do you see how they treated her body? They treated it with dignity. They, they washed her, which was a, a sacrificial, loving act. It was in accordance with Jewish custom. They honored her body after she died. This is how all dead bodies should be treated with care. And Tabitha, she really was dead. We need to grasp that. These believers, they, they weren't ignorant of death. Just because they, they didn't live in an age with greater medical advances than we do, technologies like ours, it doesn't mean that they couldn't tell when someone was dead. Right? We should be aware of chronological snobbery here. Just because we live at a later age with more medical technologies and advances that we know better than they do. If anything, those living in the first century had more familiarity with death than, than we do. In our day and age, we, we push off death to hospitals and nursing homes sometimes only to be informed that death, somebody has died later. But in the first century, family members and friends died in your arms, under your roof, at your home. They, they could all tell when a person lost their life. They could tell when someone died. They could tell that Tabitha lost hers. And, and I also wonder if laying Tabitha in that upper room, do you see that they, they do that there? indicated their belief that she would be brought back to life. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus tends to do a number of powerful things in upper rooms. These believers, they also delayed in burying her, really contrary to Jewish custom, because they knew, what did they know? You see there? They knew that Peter was nearby. That may indicate that they believe that if the Lord Jesus so desired, he could raise Tabitha back to life through Peter. Jesus had certainly done that before. They probably heard the story of Lazarus and how Jesus raised him back from the dead after he was ill and died. They certainly knew that Jesus himself got up from the dead and therefore has power over life and death. That he was alive and that he was doing mighty signs and wonders through his apostles. In fact, everything that happens with Peter in our passage and in this scene is mirrored in the healing and Jesus' miracle of raising Jairus' daughter back to life. We won't turn to it now, but you can read the account of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter back there in Back to Life in Mark chapter 5. But just so you know, here are a few parallels with, uh, with Jesus raising Jairus' daughter to what we see happening here. In Mark 5, Jesus was sought by more than one person. You see that they sent, in parallel with verse 38, they sent two people to Peter. Uh, Jairus' daughter became ill and died, verse 37, like we see here in our text. 
Uh, When Jesus gets to the house, many are weeping over the little girl's death, like we see there in verse 39. Jesus, in in Mark 5, he, he puts the weepers outside, like we see in verse 40. He took the little girl by the hand, and he spoke these words to her. Talitha, arise. See there in verses 40 and 41. And that word for little girl in Aramaic is just one consonant off of Tabitha's name in Aramaic. So Jesus spoke Talitha, arise, and Peter spoke Tabitha, arise. And Peter, he he knew that Jesus did this because he was in that room when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter back to life. Peter knew that Jesus could raise Tabitha because he saw Jesus raise Talitha. When we're reading the book of Acts, we must ever remember the opening words of the book. Do you remember the opening words? Acts chapter 1 verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the clear implication of the opening words of the book of Acts is that Luke means to chronicle the continuing ministry. The words and deeds of Jesus through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here, he is recording what Jesus is doing through the Apostle Peter. The the point of this account in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, is this. Jesus raises the disabled and the dead. That means he is alive. He's at work in our world. Both healings point to deeper spiritual realities that relate to us. Right? Just as Aeneas could not get up from his bed, on his own. And just as Tabitha could not get up from the dead on her own, neither can we get up on our own. The scriptures teach us that apart from Jesus' life-giving work in our souls, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 and Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 both teach that. But they also teach that believers were dead in their trespasses and sins, which means that Jesus spiritually raised them up. If you're a Christian here this morning, You are a walking miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus has raised you up from your spiritual grave that you are here giving Him your praise this morning. He has done the miraculous work of regeneration in your soul by His Holy Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know from this passage, He can raise you up too. He can raise you up from your spiritual grave. Friend, Jesus has the power to do that. So you should come to Him and believe upon Him. And we're going to unpack what that that means here in just a moment. But for now, looking back on Aeneas and Tabitha, it's striking to think that the Lord cares for the poor. That's Aeneas. And the wealthy, Tabitha. Both the poor and the rich alike need not just physical restoration, but especially spiritual resurrection. Everyone needs this life-giving power from Jesus. And nothing in your condition, not your age, not your gender, for Jesus heals both a woman and a man in our passage, not your ethnicity, not your education, not your poverty, not your wealth, not even your wickedness and sin bars you from the saving and life-giving power of Jesus. Nothing stops or stands in Jesus' way. Jesus loves all kinds of people. He raises all kinds of people from their spiritual graves. The Lord Jesus raises the spiritually disabled and the dead. And it is precisely why we should turn and trust in Him. And this leads us to our second point. You should turn and trust in Jesus. You should turn and trust in Jesus. Now under this heading, we need to consider 
the response to miracles that we see here in our passage, the reason for miracles, and how the reign of the Lord Jesus calls for our humble turning to and trusting in Him. The response of miracles, the reason for miracles, and the reign of the Lord Jesus. First, the response of miracles. As we read through the passage, did you notice the response of the people of Lydda and the people of Joppa? Take a look there at verse 35. Do you see those words? And all. What a wonderful word there. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon. Sharon's this um, plain that's right there next to, to Lydda. Uh, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The people of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. Those who were spiritually, previously spiritually disabled, have now been enabled to come to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with the message that Peter is preaching about Jesus. Skip down now to verse 42. You see Acts 9, 42? And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Another word for believing is trusting. Here is a harvest of people who were spiritually dead, having been raised to life to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, He used these verifiable miracles to invite the people of Lydda and Sharon and Joppa to turn from their sins and to trust in Him for the salvation of their souls. And I say that these are verifiable miracles because we're given the names and places and because the people of those cities saw them with their own eyes. Right In verse 35, we're told that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Him. They saw Aeneas. They knew his condition for eight years. And now they see him walking. And then in verse 41, we're told that Peter presented Tabitha alive to the saints and widows. What a comfort to those widows who were grieving her. Now they see this one who had been so lovingly caring for them alive. And in fact, this, this language of being presented alive is reminiscent of what we read about Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Where we're told that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. See, these, these miracles, the, the healing of Aeneas and the resurrection, or the, I should say the resuscitation of Tabitha, because uh, there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, he has a glorified body which will never die again. But sadly, Tabitha, she was resuscitated, revived from the dead, but she sadly uh, would die again, only to be received into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the last day, she will be given a body uh, that no longer dies, like we all will. On the last day, when the Lord Jesus returns, He will reunite the souls of those who have died with their bodies and giving them glorified bodies, and they'll live forever in His glorious presence. But Jesus used this resuscitation of Tabitha to, um, to invite them to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they could be proved, investigated, and proved true. We have the, the names and the places and many witnesses who saw them. The Lord used these miracles as an inducement and an invitation to turn to Jesus and to trust in Him. That's one reason for miracles, to induce and invite faith. But there are other reasons that miracles are given too. As we've seen, miracles are not merely for the blessing of the one healed, but also for the belief and faith of others. These miracles are in the Bible to bolster the faith of those who believe and to confront those who do not believe who still need to turn to Jesus and believe. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that these miracles are here in the Bible in part for you to confront you in your unbelief. Now, 
maybe you object. Maybe you think to yourself, look, I, I believe in science and I know that dead people don't come back from the dead. And friends, you're right. Normally and naturally, dead people don't come back from the dead. Normally and naturally, they do stay dead. But the truth is, is that the God who made this world and everything in it, He intervenes in His created order in surprising and supernatural ways to make Himself, His mercy, His might, and His power known. In miracles, God imposes His divine and supernatural power on nature, all for the purpose of accomplishing His will and good pleasure. In these miracles, the glory and the power of Jesus is being displayed. And you should see it and believe it. Friend, these miracles are here in Acts 9 to invite you to believe what you already deep down know is true. That there is a God in heaven who does all that He pleases. These miracles, real miracles, not these phony, fake miracles that you see these silly televangelists doing, but these real miracles call for you to submit your life to the God who made you. Friend, be careful not to worship the false idol of science or scientists. The religion of scientism has grown in leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. And even those who call themselves Christians have sometimes given themselves to worship it. To be sure, science and scientists are gifts from God, but they are not meant to be worshipped. Scientists are fallible. God is infallible. Science, you must realize, is possible in the first place because God made a stable and searchable world. And because God made the world, He can, when He pleases, confound scientists by imposing His divine, sovereign, supernatural power on the created world without breaking it. The Bible does not teach a God of deism who is like some cosmic clockmaker who makes his clock winds it up, sets it off to run, and then steps back never to touch it again. No, the Bible teaches that God is involved in the world He made, even stepping down into the world and living among His people in order to save them. God is involved. That's why there's miracles. God can do, and He has done, things that are not explainable by science, but only explainable by His sovereign revelation. What Acts 9 is telling us is that to further the faith in the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ, a paralyzed man, a disabled man, and a dead woman were raised. And friend, you should believe miracles are a revelation of the glory of Jesus and an invitation and an inducement to faith. After all, the Gospel of John is written recounting sign after sign after sign, which is just John's word for miracle, miracle after miracle after miracle. Why? Why did John record all of those signs and miracles? He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31 of his book, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. One of the reasons for miracles is to glorify Jesus and to invite us to faith in Him. The Scriptures also teach us that miracles are given for other reasons too. Another reason that miracles are given in the Bible is to authenticate the messenger and the message that is being proclaimed. So for example, in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah performed really a similar miracle to what we see here in Acts 9. Uh, Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 17, in an upper room, note, an upper room, Elijah raises a widow's son back to life. That account can be read in Acts uh, chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. But listen to how this account concludes, and listen 
to how the writer tells us that this authorizes or shows us that this prophet is authorized and it authenticates his message. This is 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 23 and 24. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him, or we would say presented him, to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, authorized, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Message authenticated. This miracle that the Lord God performed through Elijah proved that he was the authorized prophet of God and that the word of the Lord, Yahweh, in his mouth was true. In other words, this miracle signaled his authorization and as a prophet, it authenticated his message. You know, just you go over to 2 Kings, you get something similar with Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. He performed a strikingly similar miracle. Elisha was living in an upper room with a Shunammite family and the child in the family took ill and died. The Shunammite woman brought her child to the upper room where Elisha was staying. And Elisha shut the door and he prayed. You remember what Peter did? He prayed. This was one of the miracles that the Lord did and he raised him back to life. The Lord performed through him to reveal his prophetic authorization and his authority. These biblical accounts should, I think, shed significant light on what's taking place in our text in Acts chapter 9. What we should learn is that when Jesus works these miracles through Peter, we are seeing Peter as a divinely appointed messenger with a divinely authorized message, a message about Jesus that you should believe. In fact, the New Testament tells us that these are the markings of a true apostle. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul writes this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, these miracles, they prove that Peter was a man of God and that the words that he spoke about Jesus, the words that were in his mouth, like was said of Elijah, were true. That means that we should believe them. Now, perhaps you're thinking, okay, Mike, so since miracles, signs, and wonders authorize the messenger and authenticate the message, does that mean that you or Jed or Dennis are going to start cranking out some miracles? Well, what about William? Do we need to see him perform a few miracles before we recognize him as an elder? Well, the short answer and the long answer is no. Um, we, we need to remember that the apostolic era, the, the era in which the apostles were living and ministering, was a foundation-laying era of the church. So once the foundation has been laid, you don't keep laying the foundation. You go on to building, to building up. And that actually is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. He talks about the, the era of the church that's occurring. Listen to what Paul writes. And note carefully the different kinds of construction, foundation laying and, and building up and growing up. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, signs and wonders, they attended Jesus' ministry to show us that he is Savior and Lord. Then Jesus, he performed miracles through his apostles to show us that their message concerning him as Savior and Lord was true. So since the foundation 
of the church has already been laid upon Jesus and the apostles. And since the apostles' message has already been authenticated, there's no need for ongoing signs and miracles to attend and authorize the message. So Jed and Dennis and I and William, we, we don't need those signs and wonders to authenticate our message because the message that we're proclaiming is simply the message of the apostles. And that's already been authenticated in their ministry. We're now in the building era of the church where the church is growing into a holy temple of the Lord. So, so how do we build God's church? We build it by proclaiming the already authorized and authenticated message, right? That the apostles proclaimed about Jesus as Savior and Lord. This word about Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you today is true, and you ought to believe it. All the miracles that you need to bolster your faith and secure it in Jesus Christ are right here in the Bible. But aren't there miracles today? Maybe you're wondering that. Why, yes, there are. Our God has not stopped performing miracles in this world. He performs them all the time. He performs the miracle of conversion all the time. As He raises spiritually dead men and women from the grave, their spiritual graves, and leading them to turn and trust in Jesus. And He performs other miracles too. So, so some of us have heard of uh, brothers and sisters, people battling cancer for long periods of time. Right? Only to suddenly have the cancer removed from their bodies. They, they turn to the doctor, they look at the scans, and there's no more cancer in their body. And the physicians have no explanation for how that cancer disappeared. And it seems like a miracle has occurred in the life of a person. Because God's people were praying for God to remove cancer from their body. That's what we pray for members of our congregation who are battling cancer. We pray for God to remove the cancer from their body. Now, we want God to sovereignly and supernaturally intervene. But even if God does not choose to intervene in that way, the message about Jesus remains true. God does not have anything left to prove. He has provided and proved everything you need to believe this message about Jesus. So, so don't come to Him testing Him by demanding a miracle in your life or in the life of someone else or else you won't believe in Him. No, you can pray for a miracle. But God doesn't owe you one. You entrust that into His hands. Pray and plead with Him. But entrust that into His hands. And still believe this message about Jesus. He doesn't owe us anything. But the truth is, according to our text, we owe Him everything. Because Jesus, as our text says, He is Lord. Did you notice that? Our text announces that Jesus is Lord. And that indicates His reign, His rule, His right to receive worship and a call upon us to turn and trust in Him. Look at, at verse 35 again. All the saints, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Him and they turned to the Lord. This is how Jesus is being spoken of. Now look down at Acts 9.42, the last four words of that verse. They believed, many believed in the Lord. Now while that word Lord in the Bible can sometimes mean something like Sir, when it's applied to Jesus, it often means master, as in master over a slave, so that we're Jesus' servants. It means king. That means we're Jesus' subjects, living under his rule. And it even means sovereign God, Yahweh, which means he deserves our worship. Jesus is referred to as Lord, and that's how the New Testament refers to Jesus. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Listen to what Paul says there he writes 
Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what the Father did in response to Jesus, his son's work. He rewarded him with a name. Because Jesus acted so wisely, because Jesus was so obedient to God the Father, because Jesus stooped down to help those who could not help themselves, because Jesus served on the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, God the Father was moved to exalt him, to raise him up from the grave on the third day, and bestow upon him the name that is above every name. What name is that? It's Lord. Christ's exaltation from the grave is a public pronouncement of his reign and rights to rule and receive your worship. So is Jesus your Lord? Are you his willing servant and slave? Is Jesus your king? Does he rule in every area of your life? Are your decisions submitted to his will and his way? Does he receive your worship, your highest adoration and praise? When the people at Lydda and Sharon turned to Jesus, they turned from Judaism and from their sins, and they turned to the one who is master, the king, the sovereign God, the Lord Jesus. They believed the authorized messenger and the authenticated message. Friend, have you done that? Learn from the people of Lydda, Lydda and Sharon. Have you thrown off all hope in yourself and cast yourself upon Jesus? Have you discerned that your sins and rebellion against God will send you to hell, but that Jesus will save you from it? The people of Lydda and Sharon show us the right response to this truth about Jesus raising the disabled and the dead. Like them, turn away from your sin and turn to the one who raises the spiritually disabled and the dead. Turn to the one who lived a righteous life. Turn to the one who died bearing the punishment for your sins. Turn to the one who has himself arisen from the dead and been given the name Lord. Turn to Jesus and believe on Jesus. That's what the people of Joppa did too. This mostly Gentile city believed or trusted in the Lord Jesus. They believed the message that Peter proclaimed. That Jesus' righteous life fulfilled God's law and is on offer to all who believe. They believe the message of Peter that if we lay our sin on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load, as the old hymn says. They believed when Peter, when he proclaimed that Jesus is risen from the dead and that He's reigning. Friend, like the people of Lydda and Sharon and Joppa, turn to Jesus Christ and believe. Believe that precious promise from Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no doubt about it. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Is this not the whole goal of our passage? That the Lord Jesus proves His power to save by raising disabled and the dead. So we should turn and trust in Him. Indeed it is. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude, and especially the glory of Jesus in this. In this passage, in Acts chapter 9, verses 32-34, to 
to 43, the glory, the grace, the power of Jesus is on display. Just as he performed mighty signs and wonders in his personal ministry, he performed them through Peter's ministry. And all of this should persuade us of his heart toward us. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. He wrote, These miracles are meant to teach us of our Lord's power. He that could heal sick people with a touch and cast out devils with a word is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is almighty. These miracles are meant to be types and emblems of our Lord's skill as a spiritual physician. He before whom no bodily disease proved incurable is mighty to cure every ailment of our souls. There is no broken heart that he cannot heal. There is no wound of conscience that he cannot cure. Fallen, crushed, plague-stricken as we are all by sin, Jesus by his blood and spirit can make us whole. Only let us go to him. He is a most compassionate Savior. He rejected no one who came to him. He refused no one, however loathsome and diseased. He had an ear to hear all, a hand to help all, and a heart to feel for all. May we all remember that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. High in heaven and at God's right hand, He is not the least altered. He is just as able to save, just as willing to receive, just as ready to help. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is the Savior who shows you His great works and His mighty power and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh friend, Jesus, He raises the disabled and the dead. So turn to Him and trust in Him. Let me pray for us all to do that now with faith. Let's pray together.